What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is my friend, Alicia Hilton Daniel. Alicia is the founder of Hilton Daniel, a design and construction company in Durham, North Carolina. She is both an interior designer and a general contractor, and with her husband, has built a portfolio of over a dozen stunning modernist renovation and new construction projects in Greater Durham. She has graced the pages of Dwell Magazine, as well as been on the cover of Durham Magazine, and has done two building projects for the HGTV show Love It or List It. Before starting the firm, she worked at the design firms Hager Smith and MHA Works. Today, we'll be talking about Modernist 4 a new single-family home project currently in development. We will talk more broadly about Durham as a case study of the small American city seeing a real estate boom during the pandemic, but also dealing with the ghosts of its past. Thank you so much for being here with us, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me, Atif. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I want to make sure I'm fully pronouncing your name correctly, right? So my name has two pronunciations, which is fine. It's like Tomato, tomato is what I always tell people, and it's kind of my fault. So I was born in Jamaica, so by proximity to Cuba, (laughs) it's Alicia. But when I came to the States, right, third Mm -hmm. grade, Miss Engel just made me feel like my name was just so, you know, difficult to Mm -hmm. pronounce. And so I used to always say Alicia because it was just easy. And technically, that is the other pronunciation. Mm. So I'm actually fine with both. When I became a fancy interior designer, I started calling myself Alicia because I really do prefer that. But I certainly am, yeah, partial to either. I think that what I'm going to do is because I think we want to teach that teacher a lesson. Given (laughs) like my name is so hard to pronounce as well. So let's do Alicia Hilton Daniel. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) So I want to start off uh, focusing on your path to having your own firm. So uh, your path to becoming a developer started with your own house actually burning down. Tell us what happened. Right. Well, actually, that was the path to me coming in an interior designer. So I was actually a paralegal. I worked for a big fancy law firm in New York and then had at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York and then had Mm -hmm. moved to North Carolina and continued that path and was actually going to take the LSATs. I was studying for the LSATs unwillingly. I really didn't enjoy. Oh, wait, people don't like being lawyers? Right? I don't know, right? (laughs) Some do. But anyway, so we had bought this reluctantly. We had bought this cookie cutter house like over by the mall because that's where our broker told us to buy. You were kind of brand new to like Durham. And we had a house fire. The construction of the house was poorly done as it related to the fireplace. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so that kind of changed everything. So that's how I became an an interior designer. And then I always say that devastations has fostered my career path. So it was when I moved downtown after purchasing my home, my husband and I purchased an abandoned home from the bank back when you could buy a home for pretty cheap here in Durham. And we had a really bad general contractor. At that Mm -hmm. time, I was an interior designer. I was working in Raleigh, lived in Durham, and looked to an architect friend of mine to recommend a general contractor. Mm -hmm. And the person that he recommended was really dishonest. It was a nightmare. It's kind of what the stories that, you know, 
you always hear of. Mm -hmm. So that awful experience, which led me to take him to arbitration, led to Roger looking across to me, I think we were in mediation and says, you should become a general contractor. (laughs) It made sense because honestly, even when we were trying to do work on our own house, Mm -hmm. we had such a hard time with people telling us everyone said no, or there was just always something. And I was like, you know, so it, it was a game changer. I could now obviously build what I designed, but also take on clients that would also perhaps be reluctant to hire a general contractor. So you were able to take that experience and then literally build something with it and take a career shift towards something that you're much more passionate about now. Absolutely. So you left working for a design firm, which was an interperiod between studying for your LSATs and then having your own company. Walk us through that process of when you were working for others and then you made the decision to start your own firm. Right. So it would take 10 years, right? Because (laughs) it just had to, right? I had to kind of get that experience and learn. So the first firm in Raleigh, Hager Smith, giving them credit in terms of like, I don't know how interior designers were being used or what typical interior designers do, but I came into that firm during the recession of 2008, right? Mm -hmm. So by all means, as people reminded me, I was just lucky to get a job. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, when I graduated school, I was maybe one of three interior designers that actually got a job in interior designers. Some of my friends became brokers or went into like medical science. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there was just not a lot of jobs. And so for them, obviously, they build interior designers cheaper than architects. And Mm -hmm. so the interior designers there did most of like the fit ups, right? Mm -hmm. We're in North Carolina. So there's a lot of ground ups, there's a lot of big stuff. So the interior designers did more of like the office fit ups. Mm -hmm. So we would go in, we would measure the buildings, we would do our as builds, I'd be in, in that plenum space, and then I would create construction documents and four permit documents. I would meet with the owner's rep or I'd meet with the actual client. And I became, you know, that one contact for that client. The architect would look over our our drawings and seal them and they taught us a lot. And so that's kind of the fundamentals. Like Hager Smith definitely gave me kind of the formative. They formed my ability and used me in a way that I didn't know different. And so Mm -hmm. I left there, you know, I didn't like the commute. I didn't like the pay. (laughs) It didn't pay very well. It's important. And that's important to say, right? Especially when you're a woman. This was like 2008, 2009. I wasn't. And a person of color. Exactly. And a black woman, especially. So I had to go because I just wasn't going to be able to. Well, if it weren't for me being married, I would I wasn't going to be able to, you know, survive financially. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate to get a job in um, literally six blocks from my home. Awesome. So another architectural firm in downtown Durham hired me and brought me in with the promise of being a project manager and tier designer. And then when I got there, they kind of were like, it was really bizarre. And I think I really liked it there in many regards. They used me very differently, but they saw that I was more, I guess, useful as a project manager. And so they had this thing where they didn't want to call me an interior designer and project manager for whatever reason. But the woman that sat right behind me had both titles. So I called myself an interior designer and a project manager because I was an amazing interior designer. I still am. And so there I was able to bring in a lot of my own clients. Mm-hmm. I had done restaurants in, at Hager Smith. And so some of my clients opened up a second restaurant. I was kind of known for restaurants. And I like to do like the front of the house stuff. And so during this time, my husband and I had purchased a lot in Durham. We had won or we had put in for an auction. We had won the auction, <laughs> but then we lost it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the owner of the house, you know, didn't pay taxes on the house, was living out in California. His father had passed away Mm -hmm. and he was calling around anyone that purchased the house to see if he could pay the taxes. And then we purchased the house through him and everyone told him no. And we told him yes. So we were able to purchase this. Unfortunately, it was a teardown for many reasons. The house was left abandoned for his 
father had died 10 years ago and like no one even cleaned out the refrigerator. Oh my God. It had rained in the house. It was just like a hazmat situation. Anyway, so we purchased the house and then it was exciting because this was going to be the house where I was going to be able to use my general contracting license. So I was going to be both designer and contractor. This was blank canvas. Yes, exactly. At first, we weren't quite sure what we were going to do. So the designer in me took, you know, we had a survey of the lot and went down to the city and found out that the house was non-conforming, meaning Mm -hmm. back then people didn't get permission, especially, you know, in predominantly black neighborhoods, they didn't get permission from the city to build a house. They would go to a neighbor, buy a parcel of land and build a house. And so that limited in terms of the size of the house, which became interesting because I was like, well, wow, you know, and so I decided unapologetically, I was going to kind of like search into like who I am as a designer Mm -hmm. and do something modern, like bring something modern yet humble, you know, into this neighborhood and on this lot. And it was great. And I still had my full-time job. So it was so close to the lot. It was just like within walking distance. So I was able, I mean, within like a two minute drive. So I was able to go to the site in the morning, go at lunchtime and go after work. I had no life and I worked on the weekends. And so it just so happened that my partner, my husband, Roger, what he did for a living, he was able to work Friday, Saturday and Sunday evenings or mm-hmm. you know, 12 hour shifts. He was a Department of Defense firewall IT person. <laughs> and so he would be the person that would be the project manager and kind of the on-site superintendent of the site. And that's mm-hmm. how we managed to get this house completed. And then we were able to, when it was done, in a weekend, we had five offers for a two-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, 1,200 or less square foot house. So it was exciting. And I think what you described, Alicia, that experience of not having your skills fully utilized and not being fully valued is a story that I've heard again and again and again from women and particularly women of color in New York. So it's a story that I can totally empathize with because that's also the experience as a person of color in firms just like this. So I think it's one of those, it takes a lot of guts and I think it takes a lot of courage to say, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't work. So, and to go off and do something else. That's really awesome that you took that first step. So from that first project, uh, which you started in 2016, all the way to now, you have about a dozen projects completed. What have you learned across this kind of arc of projects about being a great developer and about being a great interior designer? So I have done, we're small. (laughs) So this is, we're entering our fourth year. So we pretty much, we've done a modern house a year and with the pandemic, things have slowed down. So this is our modern four house, but we started the foundation for five and six. But what we mostly do is client work, right? Like that's kind of how we have to survive. And and we are lucky and fortunate that we do get so much work that comes through the door. So development, what have I learned? Access and resources, right? Something I don't have. Also, location, 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 Mm -hmm. right? Like the story of me doing my rental house. I bought my house where I live in 2011 and my husband and I saw the potential coming Mm -hmm. from, my husband grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Long Island, but Brooklyn was always super cool. So when I was able to live in Brooklyn as a professional, I lived in the Fort Greene, Clinton Hill area And Durham just kind of had that vibe about it, especially where I live now. And so even though, you know, you couldn't convince most of my friends to move downtown Durham, I saw that it was going to just continue to be a place that people came to because Duke started being interested in being in Durham. There was Mm -hmm. just a lot happening. Duke students were that graduated were actually now calling Durham home. And so we looked at this abandoned house that was on, you know, a block away from my house as a investment mm-hmm. potential, right? And it was at that point where we, you know, back then you could just call the bank, call the number. There was like the, the bank owned the house and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're ready, just let us know. We'll take your number down in case someone else 
calls in the <laughs> offer. That's not how it is now. So what we've seen is that things were tangible within reach for people that actually lived in the South or lived in Durham. You could afford it to now I'm four years in and I can't afford to buy anything this year, not even with what I've sold. And I think that's something that people need to understand is that I'm certainly not getting rich off of this. Mm -hmm. I love it and I enjoy it. And I'm certainly charging what I think I'm worth, but everyone else has to get paid, right? Your electrician and all of these craftsmen are no longer working for minimum wage. They've never worked for minimum Mm -hmm. wage, but now they won't even work for double minimum wage. So Mm -hmm. Material pricing, we've seen over the pandemic and being developers in this short time and doing modernist three, you know, worrying about selling that house because back, you know, when last year, this time people couldn't enter homes, they had to do virtual tours, or if they came in, it was very kind of like, you know, it was kind of like very just unusual, right? You would have to make an appointment. It was very formal. So that's kind of what we've seen, right? So we're kind of like, Things were attainable before, and now they're getting to the point where we don't know how hopefully we'll be able to stay in this in this game. Hopefully we'll be able to get resources and access. Hopefully people will see what we do and want to invest in us. And I think that's what the main thing is. Roger and I are not getting the investors, even though I've been on the cover of Dwell, well, not on the cover of Dwell, but on the cover of Dwell magazine and featured in Dwell, that just got me noticed that just got mm-hmm. me i always said that got me to the table of mediocrity right like here here she is but it doesn't get me to people calling me up or sending me an email saying how can i help you how can i invest in you because i'm i'm assured do you i think i am you know everything that we've built we've sold quickly we've done you know a pretty good job we've gotten recognition most of the owners <laughs> I know we're friends with and my clients invite me over for Thanksgiving and dinner. So it's, you know, having that reputation, but also kind of understanding or still, I'm I'm still learning because I, I don't think we've ever been in this situation where you're living in rural in, well, not rural, but you're living in a small town in the Mm -hmm. South and it's now becoming a big deal. And so Every time you turn around, either something's been acquired that you didn't know about. And you're like, how did I not know about that? Like, why wasn't I part of that? No. Or people are buying things for a ridiculous price. And you're like, how are they going to make revenue? How are they going to turn that around? And so I guess these are people that just have like, generational wealth or just make a lot more money. And so they're able to come here and snap things up and take that risk that in maybe the the next five to 10 years, they'll see a return on it. I think if we had more developers like you as things that people saw, the general public would have a much better perception of real estate developers and investors. So I think that um, what you're describing is particularly a challenge that exists for secondary cities uh, in large parts of the country. Newark, New Jersey, exactly what you described. New Haven, Connecticut, exactly what you described, which also happen to be cities with very large Black populations too. And I don't think the two are completely coincidental. So I think that that is a really good entree into uh, talking a bit more about Modernist 4. So you mentioned that project. So tell us the scope of this project. All right. So this project is a little different than the former three I've done, mainly based on location. So I'm taking a risk. The other three that I've done have been in walkable neighborhoods, like walkable to downtown. This in itself, though, is also an, it's an older neighborhood. It's called Colonial Village. It was very post-war, all white, blue collar neighborhood, just across 85. It's almost like Black Wall Street. They put 85 there. (laughs) For some reason, it's in a very bad place. But it's sort of disconnected, but it sort of isn't because you could cross the street and walk through a park mm-hmm. and get to downtown Durham. Kind of a nice way to get to downtown if you had to walk or, or take a scooter. But I like this neighborhood because I tend to unapologetically like walkable urban neighborhoods. That's where I live. That's what I know. And that's what I'm very comfortable doing. I'm also not, you know, taking down trees, you know, <laughs> 
So that's another thing. I literally designed this house with the existing trees on this lot. No trees were taken down. But what I also try to do is, which I've done with the other three, is I look at the existing houses. And even though I am building modern, I try to integrate it in a way that it does kind of give a nod to the post-war. So for instance, I do have an A-frame roof, but it's like an offset roof, right? So I'm like, okay, we're going to A-frame it, but we're going to also introduce modern. I also went out there and measured the houses on either side just to make sure that my roof line wasn't going to be taller than anyone else's house. And I built a one-story house, which is typical to this neighborhood. Now my house is larger than the other neighbors because my house is built today, right? So it doesn't have one bathroom like the other houses have. Because honestly, whoever buys those older homes usually sticks on an addition where they add, you know, a primary ensuite. So it's a one-story house. It has three bedrooms on the main floor and a small room, which could also be an office or a nursery. And the reason why I say the main floor is that the house drops in the back. So we had the opportunity to do a walkout basement, which Mm -hmm. we did. And I wanted to also obviously use that real estate and think about the occupant of that home for many reasons. You're in a pandemic. So if you had to have a a home office that you wanted disconnected from your house, as I do in my house, (laughs) it would be a perfect opportunity. Also, you know, as we look at Durham and people moving here, there's a lot of residents and professors. Mm -hmm. Certainly the occupants of this home could have a investment income opportunity or grandparents coming Mm -hmm. to visit from Jersey could come (laughs) for the summer and stay a while. But I also wanted to invoke, you know, my design influences and what I love. And I love mid-century modern. So these houses were built in the 40s. There are some cute mid-centuries on the other block or kind of around. And so I wanted to introduce or kind of give a nod to mid-century. So I did split face CMU block on the basement portion of the home. And I did like just some mid-century elements where you would like take a simple building, but divide it by materials. I usually always try to do a rain screen wall because I just really love that warmth, kind of that warm modern take on a home. And maybe that's that interior designer in me that feels like there needs to be some warm on the exterior as well, not only on the interior. And then we always, I always think about, and this is kind of where I guess (laughs) maybe sets me apart. I live here locally. So I do spend a lot of time in the design Phase walking the actual lot and trying to figure out where I'm going to place windows for many reasons. One, I want to capture, again, I'm in a very urban setting. So I want to capture and make sure that I'm giving views of the existing trees on the lot that you're not looking into your neighbor's bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I also want to create a sense of privacy. I want to try to see how much glass I can introduce, but also create a privacy, a sense of privacy, not only for the homeowner, but for the actual neighbors too, especially mm-hmm. if I'm building something a little bit grander, I just don't want the neighbors to feel like, you know, I'm, we're kind of peering over and looking into their home. So I try to be very intentional and we've gotten some really nice DMs on my Instagram from some of the neighbors. It's been very nice. One neighbor is really excited and they basically told me that I did a really good job. So awesome. that really makes a, that makes a huge difference. I mean, I'm always going to have people that are not going to like what I do. They're mm-hmm. just like anti-modern, anti-anything, development, anti-teardown, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and say we don't tear down anything that we can actually save. Unfortunately, the house that was here had an illegal addition and a house fire. There was literally charred... <laughs> parts of the house down to the foundation. And the reason that we were surprised it was still standing in many parts. So it had to be taken down and it wasn't built well. So we built a better house. That's pretty much it. I think, you know, it'll be a little bit different. I've done houses where I've done a little bit of a a contrast of like white and dark. Mm -hmm. And this house I'm painting pretty much all one very dark color with some cypress wood. And I love cypress because it is local to North Carolina It's Mm -hmm. an oily wood. 
And I think it holds up really well with all the rain and kind of humidity we get here in the South. So you mentioned earlier on 85 and Black Wall Street. Could you talk about that in a little bit more detail for people that may not be familiar with that? Yeah, well, I always have to kind of revisit it, right? Mm -hmm. Because Black Wall Street was primarily Parish Street in downtown Durham. And unlike the violent Tulsa massacre, Durham did the end of Black Wall Street a little bit more civilly, right? They just literally built the highway through it. So that prevented people from being able to get to downtown easily, right? If you didn't own a car, it was a long, you know, you had to cross streets. There weren't, you know, sidewalks or anything like that. So they made it so that it would deter, especially poor Black people, from being able to get to the downtown, to be able to enjoy the amenities and all that Black Wall Street had to offer. It's sad because (laughs) the population here in Durham is probably has the highest percentage of African-Americans than most cities or towns, especially like um, major cities and towns here Mm -hmm. in Durham. Black Wall Street is no longer really Black owned. There is, you know, plaques and that sorts of things, but there's not really any there might be one or two buildings that are owned by African-Americans. It's not a huge street by any means. It's a small city. But at one point, you know, it was primarily the Mechanics and Farmers Bank, which is a black bank. And, you know, a lot of black industry was right there in the heart of downtown Durham. And I think um, you mentioned the the Tulsa massacre early on, which was in 1921 and was essentially a government-sponsored massacre of a Black economic area with the pretense of some retribution for an event that didn't happen between a Black man and a white woman. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting is that there is something that incites such an anger amongst a white majority in those cities. It's the idea of wealth and Black people having wealth, which is the tie between Tulsa and Durham. It's just the the circumstances of how that was responded to was just a different one. But I think the result was in some ways rather the same. Yes. And I think that's that's actually key, right? Because here I am, a Black woman in Durham, trying to acquire wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Through real estate, through those sorts of things. And I've not had any direct racial experiences, but I've also not been privy to things that have been for sale that I know 100% I would have done a nicer job with because I really love my city. And so, you know, I try to be thoughtful about what I put on these lots. So it hasn't (laughs) hurt my feelings and just who has access to that, you know, even though it's not in your face, like it was back in, you know, the, the Black Wall Street era, it's still there. It's just not said. Yeah. I think particularly what I've found is over the, the past uh, year or so is the way that I have found to respond to things like that is just to verbalize it everywhere and just tell everyone everything. So, for example, leaving one of my construction sites for a rundown 1890s townhouse in Hoboken that had turned into a gorgeous condo building, a group of college kids yelled terrorist at me. Literally had no idea who I was, did not realize I owned that property and I was redeveloping it. I just yelled terrorists because they felt like it. And I think the the more and more that I tell people, tell city council people, tell the mayor, tell the police, like that's when you start actually seeing something. So I think for me, at least, I found it that I just don't stay quiet. I just say everything I want to say. <laughs> so I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having on a really special person on the podcast later this season. Pascal Sablon is a designer at Adjay Associates and the founder of an amazing architecture advocacy organization called Beyond the Built Environment. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com so you don't miss hearing from Pascal and all of our awesome guests in season two. So... Any conversation about Durham invariably leads to Duke University. So we all know that Duke has a terrible basketball team. (laughs) 
but <laughs> that's not the, the focus. Go Tar Heels. Uh, that's not the focus of this particular question. So I visited the, the Gothic campus when I was in Durham earlier this summer. It's stunningly beautiful. And I came to learn that it was designed by a Black architect who was not allowed to come to campus during construction because he was Black. And uh, Duke University is one of the largest employers now in the Metro Durham area, and it's earned the nickname of the plantation uh, for its uh, slave-owning founders and pointedly for the low wages and other issues that, that they're, they're known for in uh, the Durham area for now. All of that said, what kind of a place does Duke have in your image of what Durham is? Yeah. You know, it's really a mixed bag, right? Because I'll be honest with you. The reason why I moved or my broker, right? I was living in Raleigh and I was, Raleigh just was not a good fit for me. And so we came into Durham and what what was attractive about Durham for me was downtown. Mm -hmm. I had a black broker who told me that people don't live in downtown. It's dangerous. Okay. So fast forward, this was a time when Duke just happened to be in Durham, Right. They were kind of here. You would see the students maybe living in like little, you know, the older kind of eclectic, for lack of a better word, older homes in like the Trinity Park and even where I live now in Old North Durham. But they didn't really partake in Durham, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the professors maybe, you know, kind of stayed within their Trinity Park and Duke Forest. But you really never saw like Duke graduates stay in Durham. And then all of a sudden it just, it changed, right? Like you had this sort of like, as a designer, I just remember it changing when Duke became the leaders in this area for like lead buildings. Mm -hmm. They started being very sustainable. They started being very intentional and it became a game changer. Now there might be other parts and pieces, but I'm just talking about it in terms of like the design world. Clearly they're the, you know, medicine is also what, you know, the Duke is known for. Mm-hmm. That was a game changer. And so you started to see students graduate and make Durham home. You started to see at one point, Durham was very black and white and Latinx. You mm-hmm. really didn't see Asian culture here in Durham. You'd have to go into Cary. And all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, whoa, look, you know, and it was exciting. So with that bad, there is some good. I'll tell you right now, like there are a lot of interesting and lovely African-Americans. There's Mark Anthony Neal. That's like the head of the African-American studies. And our daughters used to swim together. And he's kind of like this big force at Duke. Culturally, you know, John Hope Franklin, right, was at Duke for many, many years. They've named the center after him, the Nasher Museum. The National Museum, which is so rich with African-American modern art, black art. So Kehinde Wally, I actually was able to meet Kehinde Wally back in 2008, I think, at the Nasher. So he had a show at yes. the Brooklyn Museum. OK, for, yeah. For yeah. Well, he came to the Nasher. So Durham, you know, Duke, I think, has obviously, you know, it still has its its issues. Right. But I think, you know. Who doesn't, right? When you're talking about New Haven, Connecticut, Yale Mm -hmm. is there, right? So there's kind of this reputation where the South kind of gets hit harder than the North. Mm -hmm. But we all know that me growing up in New York, I felt like neighborhoods were far more segregated in New York, right? Than they are in the South. And that's, it still feels that, that way when I go up to New York, it still feels like if you're black and you're living in an affluent neighborhood, then why are you there? You just, you just, no one's bought it from you yet. Mm-hmm. So I, <laughs> right. Cause I mean, you know, this happens. My cousin, Prospect Heights, Grand yes, Heights. my cousin yes. lives in Fort Green Clinton Hill and she does well and she owns a few salons and she's always getting people asking her to sell her house, but they're not asking the white lady next door. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. So it's kind of, you know, that thing about Duke where there's still probably that presence there, but they have done a lot of good. They have employed a lot of people. I'd say, you know, a lot of my clients are Duke affiliated. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) in many ways, they've kept me employed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know what they did? And I, I have not really looked into this, but over the pandemic, they had grants for small businesses. 
and it was mostly geared towards people of color. So you had mm-hmm. to like, yeah. And so they were, and you, I think you had to be like a, a nonprofit, which mm-hmm. I am not. So I did not qualify, but you know, I've been asked when I sold modernist three, um, there was an economic professor there who came by and Raj and I did a talk with his class and it was very oh. engaging. I didn't feel, you know, like it was a little, you know, pretentious, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I feel like Duke has really kind of opened its arms and has really much been why Durham is where Durham is now. You know, some people don't like for me to say that, but I'm like, if Duke pulled out, honestly, just about everything here is Duke. Our hospital, our labs, our even some of the buildings downtown are owned by Duke. Their occupants may be like a startup, but they might be Duke owned. So I feel like they've done or they've really try to do a lot of good here in Durham. I think particularly the way that you're describing the the geography, the race, the social climate of Durham really does sound so much like New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. And I think particularly the issue that is probably at the heart of so many of the town and gown issues in New Haven is the reality that because of its nonprofit status, Yale University, which like most universities are essentially, they are for-profit institutions, regardless of whether they're defined as nonprofit or not, are able to take a large swath of the city's footprint and burden its city services without paying taxes. Mm. So I know the argument is, oh, but we do this and oh, but we do this. But it often seems that that argument is one that is only benefiting one party, not both. Of course. And we've definitely seen that. And we've seen even... You know, there's this thing, you know, as in all cities, affordable housing. And for me, affordable housing means owned, not rented. And so if the university has the means, which we know that they do, they ought to work on that with our city council. But it's just so it's just it's really heated. Like when you you're in a very progressive city, right? Like everyone. You know, where the, yeah. And <laughs> you sit in on these city council meetings and they can't agree on anything. Mm-hmm. And progress cannot happen. And, you know, there are people that are not boots on the ground. And so they're not understanding, like, historically, like what these neighborhoods are now, just what they were then and who's mm-hmm. really living there and, like, how they can be that change and how. You know, we have a lot of teachers here who have to commute from like, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes outside of Durham because they can't afford housing and they don't Mm -hmm. want to rent. They're trying to start a family and Durham has an inventory and there are opportunities that they can think differently about what affordable housing is rather than it being something that is rented and something Mm -hmm. that is temporary because we all know what happens with rentals over time, unless you have an awesome landlord like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't stay that way, right? Yeah. They start to deteriorate. So they're maybe only attractive for maybe seven to 10 years of that. Mm-hmm. And so having that mindset is something that Duke certainly has the means and the access and should think about. Mm-hmm. And I'd be willing to, you know, be a part of that discussion. So next time there is a mayoral election. (laughs) (laughs) I think city council will be more fun. Any executive elected official is the pits because everyone blames you for everything. But a legislative one, you can do nothing and just have so much fun, right? (laughs) Okay, I'll look into that. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, we've had some good mayors come in. The one that we have now, he's not running again and he's older and he wants to be with his grandchildren, but you just don't know because you're never, I think you know, you're never going to make everybody happy. And I mm-hmm. think some of them have good intentions and really want to, or mm-hmm. think that they can change and make, I mean, well, make everyone happy. And I think that's just the point, right? Like I can't make everyone like me or like what I do, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop doing it. 
I think what's there, there's so many things that you've touched on that are fascinating about Durham. And particularly, I think what it is, is that it's emblematic uh, more so than any like the Northeast cities that we've been comparing to. It's emblematic of a new American city, a new American small city. And there's things that are part of this recipe for this, this new city. It's an anchor by a university, particularly a research university that employs a lot. Uh, it's about a diversified industry base. So now increasingly pharmaceuticals and healthcare in Durham. It's about an educated population. It's about relatively low cost of living. It's about low taxation. It's about good highway access and transportation, a, a temperate climate. What other things would you say are a part of the Durham recipe about making it for other small cities across America? That are making it for other cities? Well, we have, yeah. a, we have a nice food scene here. In oh, Durham. food. That's another part of <laughs> The draw people and keep people Right. There. So the Magnolia Grill used to be here in Durham. Do you know what that is? Mm. So I believe it was the New York Times or it might have been the, the New Yorker years ago that did this article where they did the magnolia tree. And it was a symbol of the magnolia um, grill here in Durham and all the famous chefs that yeah, yeah. take off of it and how those chefs are either in New York or Seattle or and a lot of them are still here. So that's, that's part of my, it's my list of when I come back yeah. to, to see you, I'm going to go to Magnolia. OK, <laughs> well, it's gone now. Mona oh. is there. So the owners retired, which is why I think this article was was done mm-hmm. to kind of show all of the people that came out of there. And so, you know, Durham does offer that. It is very, as, as you said, there's, there is a lot of culture here. You know, I would like to see more destinations. So mm-hmm. I, I think the issue here in Durham is that I have park envy when it comes to the other cities that aren't as diversified as Durham, like they have these beautiful parks. And, and I think that Durham just needs to think about that because they, you know, the word gentrification is always thrown around. And I'm like, we can be a city of black people and have beautiful things. We can Mm -hmm. have a beautiful park. We can have all of this. And there's a lot of just littering in our city and things like that. So just kind of taking it a little back from an interior designer's perspective and from a builder unapologetically, like just thinking about our city moving forward Mm -hmm. and how we want to make it more of a community and how we want to change the stigma of what things ought to look like Mm -hmm. when people of color or black people inhabit them. Mm -hmm. So kind of changing that mindset, you know, I would like to see, more, I hate this word, but ethnic restaurants Mm -hmm. downtown, right? I'm Jamaican. I came here at seven, but, you know, I'd like to see more Vietnamese, just more, Mm -hmm. you know, culturally rich, beautiful food downtown. And, you know, just, I mean, I do feel like it is a very friendly city, Mm -hmm. right? As a black woman, you're always cautious that you can never be too comfortable but I really do love this city. I've been very comfortable here. It's mm-hmm. even though, you know, I feel like it's it's one of those things where I've told people that I can agree to disagree with you. And I can literally talk to you like this in a coffee shop and go up. <laughs> and then you turn around and we're like having dinner tomorrow. Yeah. So it's just one of those cities where, you know, we are that Southern city where people are wearing masks. You know, everyone is very, yeah, like we're just not having it. It's a very progressive city. It's a very like-minded city. I'm in construction. So I work with a little bit of everybody outside of Durham. Mm -hmm. So I see a little bit of everything, but you know, it's come a long way. I'd like to see more theater, just, you know, more culture, just bring Mm -hmm. it on, bring it on. I think what is so interesting is that Durham has traveled this path of, reimagining an American city so quickly relative to others. And I think in particular, the interesting question is what is coming next? And I think with Apple and Google announcing their intention to build new corporate campuses here, that adds another industry to the mix for Durham. But then there is this vision into the future of what Durham could be. And I think the idea that Durham could become a San Francisco in terms of how complete housing or extreme mm-hmm. housing in affordability and lack of access, lack of so many major issues that are now socially dividing parts of San Francisco. How would you 
imagine that Apple and Google coming to Durham could do good for the city without doing the bad that perhaps we've come to see in other American cities with large tech presence? Yeah. Well, one, I would hold it on them, right? Like mm-hmm. they know what they've done to those cities, which is why they're coming here, right? <laughs> they've priced them out. Yep. So your average person can no longer afford to live in San Jose. There is what? Only 30% of people in San Francisco actually own their homes. Is that the right amount? Or it might be less today. Probably even less. I'm sure. Yeah. Less, um, yeah. Roger just showed me a burned out fixer upper in, I can't remember if it was San Francisco or Oakland mm-hmm. that sold for a million dollars. Of course. It We're did. talking. It was no, it was completely charred on the outside. They, <laughs> they had no shame in showing you pictures. Right. So these companies need to be held accountable. If they're saying that they're moving here Mm -hmm. so that the people that are working for them or the communities that they're moving in can still afford to live there, Mm -hmm. then they need to put their money where their mouth is, just like we're asking Duke to, right? Like Mm -hmm. what are they doing to be stewards of, you know, of affordability? What does Mm -hmm. that look like? It's very nuanced though, because I always say, When people talk to me and want to understand racism when they're not black, I'm so confused. You designed it. It's your footprint. It's your house. Mm -hmm. But you're inviting me into your house and asking me to show you around, right? Mm -hmm. So hopefully they have people working (laughs) with them. They have Mm -hmm. a board or they have not even a board because you don't, you want a representation Mm -hmm. of the people that are being disenfranchised or the people Mm -hmm. that can explain to you what to do or ideas, right? Mm -hmm. People that are actually boots on the actual ground, not someone living in, you know, a million or $2 million Mm -hmm. home that eats out every night. And they need to be able to know that not everybody that works for these companies are going to be high execs, right? I think Mm -hmm. part of the problem that we're seeing now with the labor market, there's not enough people working because nobody Mm -hmm. wants to work for anything because they can't live. Mm -hmm. So hopefully they're using these, this information and taking all of this information and processing Mm -hmm. all of this information. And hopefully they're going to do something about it that they're going Mm -hmm. to create because they have the access and the resources to do so. They can build, right? They mm-hmm. can control and buy. You know, I, I think what's going to happen is I think most of their sites are in the Research Triangle Park area, which is kind of interesting because part of it's Raleigh and part of it's Wake County, which is Raleigh, mm-hmm. and part of it's Durham. And it's really interesting because how these lines get kind of blurred, what's Raleigh, what's Durham. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the... Raleigh makes more money off of RTP than Durham actually does because, again, Durham was a predominantly black city. So there's a lot of history on Mm -hmm. Research Triangle Park as it relates to that border of what's in Wake County and what's in Durham County. But interesting to see because a lot of the people that tend to also move to the area that are even blacks or, you know, people of color from out of state always tell them, always tell me that their brokers say that not to really think about Durham because Durham's not safe because, you know, we have a, a larger black population. Yeah. So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what does happen when these companies come here because it might be a mixed bag unless you really know the actual area and you like to live in more of like a urban city, then yes, Durham would be the more attractive of the options and just kind of seeing how it's all going to plan out because I don't have any, (laughs) any say as to what's going to happen. I'm just going to, I guess, sit back and watch. I think what's so interesting about these two bogeymen in this conversation (laughs) of Duke and big tech is how similar they are in terms of taxation. So the corporate tax rate in the United States right now is at 21%. It was over 50% as recent as 1970s. So it wasn't that long ago the corporate tax rate was 50%. And I think what you end up seeing in this kind of duality of these large entities that take 
but have in their, I guess, their, their arc of history, incredibly low or non-existent taxation, is there's just this transfer of wealth to big tech and to universities that are able to do what they please with mm-hmm. that money. And I think the challenge then becomes, how does a city move in the direction that it wants to go when it's in a position to ask for things rather than to be able to do things with the money that it would receive through taxation? And I think that that, I would imagine, is going to be the extreme challenge of any city that says, here, 20 years of tax abatement, pay us nothing, just show up because you're giving away your power as the city. You have, then what would you do, right? Like that, I, I'm thinking that that might be like a potential challenge. for And we've obviously, we've seen that happen even with um, Amazon, right? Coming to Long Island <laughs> City and everybody, it's like you, you want these big companies to come and then you give them, why are you giving? They have, so we're keep mm-hmm. giving to the rich and, you know, sacrificing everyone else. I would probably say, I think there is a very important argument to make that way. And there's also another argument to make that it's just bad business to to give somebody else all of your negotiating power. How is that a good business? It doesn't seem to be like, I mean, both of us are small business owners. That doesn't seem good business to me. No, every year that we do our, our taxes, I just cringe. I'm like, we really have to pay all that? Like we've already you know, are paying and paying mm-hmm. and you just can't, you know, the bar is set here and you get almost there and then they raise it yep. for small companies. And yeah, so it's tough. So let's see what Durham does. We'll so. see. I'll, <laughs> I'm sure he'll probably keep me abreast of it in case I'm just <laughs> on a site and I missed it. <laughs> so on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Alicia. And if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever it is that you like to listen. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and many of our spectacular guests like Alicia on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach beyond the boundaries we see and the boundaries we create to help build homes and to build communities. Today, Alicia and I have made donations to Beyond the Built Environment, which advocates and celebrates diverse designers and diverse environments that they create. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well by donating at beyondthebuilt.com. That address will also be in our show notes. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves.